Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. They are going to just be a chameleon who fits in everywhere. They'll be a good communicator. They'll be clever. They'll be absolutely able to manipulate. And they'll tend to be people who go without protection because they are your average Joe. They want you to believe that you're safe in a circumstance because that's the chink in your armor, to believe that you're safe. Anybody should be able to do anything, go anywhere, wear whatever they like, live their lives as they wish. But that's what serial killers also wish for us to do. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Serial killers are one of the most fascinating and spoken about facets of the true crime genre. But what makes a murderer and why are we so interested in their dark and twisted minds? I'm Claude Amini and today I'm talking to psychologist and crime commentator Emma Kenny about what makes a serial killer, what victims they prefer and her brand new live show, The Serial Killer Next Door. This is Crime World, a podcast from sunderworld.com. Emma, there's not many people who give me job envy because, to be honest, I love my job. But I have to say, looking through your career, you are one of those people that make me very jealous of what you do uh, on the day to day. So tell us a little about your career and what it is that you do for a job. So my career started 20 years ago and basically my first love is always going to be therapy. So I did psychology undergrad and I had 12 years training, three different paradigms of therapeutic intervention, masters, etc. in that kind of area. And I suppose my obsession is with people and journeys. And I am really nosy, but I'm just really good at being nosy and confidential. And I don't pretend for one minute that that isn't an essential ingredient in therapeutic paradigms. You need to be really invested in the story of a person that's telling you it. So then I started running projects for young offenders Young offenders tend to be victims. Mm -hmm. We don't really like to talk about that very often. So it's like black and white. I've done crime presenting for a long time, but they tend to have this very clear victim, perpetrator. And of course, when you work with young offenders, you realize that many of them are sexually abused, emotionally abused, physically abused, neglected, usually out of education. So my passion was to kind of marry therapeutic paradigm with the offending paradigm to see whether intervening on a social psychology level in projects could have Mm -hmm. an impact. 
did really well and it was wonderful and I still have contact with a lot of my boys and girls and it's a real privilege to have been engaged in their lives. I then was mainstream because our project was so successful and we were bought by an enormous college and I started running their mental health services there. But during that period of time, I had done some research for a production company and advised them to ethically change their mind about a documentary and I didn't realise that TV... You work maybe for three months here, three months there. It's very transitory. So somebody said, we've got this woman that has worked with us and she's maybe a little bit different to what people expect for this kind of area, mm-hmm. like Goblin, for example. And they asked whether I'd go for a screen test for a BBC show of 20 episodes. And I wasn't going to, but then I realised it was quite a fun job. And so I went not thinking I'd get it. I got it. And that kind of transitioned me into doing the work that I was still doing, which is therapeutic and working in projects and running educational systems for young people who are very, very dysfunctional and then being offered the opportunity to do things in TV. And the crime stuff was because, as I said, it's transitory. So people were starting to say, oh, well, Emma Kenny does this, works Mm -hmm. with this particular and I got a call from a producer saying he was doing a series called Britain's Darkest Taboos and would I be in it? And there was myself and Kerry Nixon initially, who were the two stalwarts of that series, and we did six seasons. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of that, I never stopped working. And this morning, I became an agony aunt for them. Close the magazine I've written for for a decade. I write for a lot of the big publications regarding psychology. So I've managed to marry the whole love of crime, criminal offending, victimology, and therapeutic experience with TV and obviously the general media. So I have been very, very fortunate. And in the recent years, I've gone into my touring and I've gone into my YouTube, which has been a whole new world because there are no limits when yeah. you're on YouTube, for example. I find that very alluring. Absolutely. I mean, you have a huge myriad of experience. But what we're here to talk about today is something that is of interest to so many people, and that is serial killers. Uh, so Emma, can you start us off maybe by telling us a bit about what is a serial killer? What is defined as a serial killer? So... There's often a lot of disagreement about how they're defined, but I absolutely agree with the FBI system's profiling of it, which is two or more killings with a cooling off period in between. Mm -hmm. So you have to have time to rethink, recalibrate behavior, reframe what you've done, turn yourself in. And if you don't do that and then you kill somebody else, then if you're apprehended at that point, there's a strong likelihood that you're going to continue. Some people in the UK will say three or more. Don't get it. As far as I'm concerned, if you've killed two or more and you've had a cooling off period, the reality is that you have the potential to continue being a serial killer. So that would be the definition. Mm -hmm. And what would the uh, cooling off period be considered? Is it like an hour? Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? It would be more than an hour. So anything like if you have an imagine of four or more people being killed on one event, so that could be in a day, it could mm-hmm. be a shooting in a day, that's considered a mass killing. Mm-hmm. And it isn't that certain serial killers haven't carried out mass killings as well as other serial killings, because we do see that. We see that with people like Richard Chase. We see that with Dennis Radar, for example. They killed four people in one go, but then they took time, went and lived their lives for a period of, time and then they went on and killed again so it can be a few days it can be weeks it can be decades seen serial killers who kill and then don't kill for a very long period of time Mm -hmm. and that's really what makes particularly the organized type of killer incredibly chameleon-like because they can essentially exist within our world without our knowledge and without our detection for 
very long periods of time. And to throw another type of killer into the mix is a spree killer. Can you tell us what differentiates a serial killer from a spree killer? So a spree killer is a mass killer. It's the same. Some people say mass, some people say spree. So a spree killer is when an individual goes on a rampage. And you'll see that in situations like school shootings. Mm -hmm. So Sandy Hook, for example, those are examples of an individual usually planning and preparing and then having a specific goal to do as much damage in a short amount of time, essentially. And usually the psychological determination for that is more about notoriety Mm -hmm. and visibility. So it's about as far away from what a serial killer is doing, if they're an organized serial killer. I mean, disorganized are less consequential and you do get people who cross over. But if you think about a spree killer, they absolutely want to be found. It's not about ever getting away with it. It's about somebody burning into the conscience of all those individuals affected by it, that they existed and that they did this damage. So there's a narcissistic quality towards that kind of carrying out of an attack. And also they believe that they will be lauded to some degree. And ironically, that is not an incorrect assumption to make because there are certain pockets of subculture that do laud those kind of killers. Mm. And when it comes to manifestos, especially, I feel like we see those a lot with spree killers, but then you have the crossover with the Unabomber, who was not a spree killer, a serial killer who had a manifesto as well. What's the sort of psychology behind killers having something like that? So first of all, there's the rehearsal and the psychological fantasy side of it. So when you think about somebody who is planning and prepping Mm. and who can fit both paradigms of mass killer, spree killer and serial killer, usually the fantasy state is really powerful. So they feed and pump their feelings and legitimacy of their actions by deciding why they are doing something and giving a bias to the reality that they have a permission base for that. Mm -hmm. As in, I'm doing this for the good of. And we see that in lots of killings, you know. It's because there are too many immigrants. It's because there are too many Jewish people. You actually see those individuals saying, we're doing something that's socially effective, socially positive. And of course, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But if they can rehearse and pump and bind themselves into that belief system, it makes the actual going through with it easier and also the fantasizing of the event is almost as powerful as the event itself the problem with human beings and this is full stop is we're very unpredictable Mm -hmm. and when you're unpredictable you kind of break down the wants and needs and the psyche of the person trying to affect a certain result so living in the fantasy planning it prepping it buying weapons all of this means that you are prepared and ready but you're still not doing the act but you're enjoying the ride towards the act, which is why they create these kind of manifestos. It's why they're often in groups with other people talking about these kind of negative, malevolent bases for their behavior. But what I would say that the typical serial killer does is they don't want detection. Mm-hmm. They don't really want to be caught. So they're not necessarily as loud and proud about that kind of behavior as a spree killer would be. And just on that, on the typical serial killer, is there a typical kind of stereotype typical serial killer it'd <laughs> be was. a lot easier wouldn't it's it you're the serial killer um so i mean what we know is that the organized serial killer versus the disorganized serial killer we can look at some stereotypes that are more applicable i would say towards the disorganized so 
people imagine that a serial killer will be a weird loner, that there'll be somebody who can't connect very well, they won't be socially very good, there'll be individuals potentially of lower intellect. You know, if they're the individuals that we want to mythically believe we could mm -hmm. spot, the disorganized serial killer is going to be more in that realm. But when you think about an organized, and if you're talking about the perfect paradigm of organized, they are going to just be a chameleon who fits in everywhere. They'll be a good communicator, they'll be clever, they'll be absolutely able to manipulate and they'll tend to be people who go without detection because they are your average joe they genuinely are i mean i'd say that your organized serial killer is going to be a lust killer on the whole which is motivated by sex therefore mostly male but it's complicated because no one fits every box perfectly mm -hmm. You get almost archetypal perfect serial killer who's organized and then you get many of the infamous ones who kind of to some degree fall outside a little bit of that perfect paradigm and some that cross over entirely. Mm. And what do serial killers look for when they're picking a victim? Oh, vulnerability, availability and desirability. They've told us. Yeah. So they've said three main components. They want you to believe that you're safe in a circumstance because that's the chink in your armor to believe that you're safe. Like anybody should be able to do anything, go anywhere, wear whatever they like, live the lives as they wish. But that's what serial killers also wish for us to do. Because yeah. then we will mean that they can get access. So they are very good at essentially stalking and homing in on the type of human being that they want to eradicate essentially. And when it comes to what kind of person can be a serial killer a lot of the time you'll hear about this mcdonald triad is that an, right. is that an accurate indicator for determining whether or not somebody has the potential to be a serial killer well it's an interesting one because like every single theory in science is disputed by many yeah. so john mcdonald certainly as far as i am concerned has some real key insights and i've worked with young men who are still late teenagers young adults and when i've seen things like animal torture in their background that is a huge red flag and i have yet to meet a young person with animal torture in their background who hasn't gone on to criminal activities as an adult who hasn't gone on to be violent mm. as an adult even though there are criticisms of that triad and there are criticisms about the fact that, well, you know, for example, bedwetting and uresis, it's absolutely linked to abuse. So, of course, you might have lots of bedwetting as a child into your teenage years. But if you've been horribly molested, that's completely contextual. That doesn't mean you're yeah. going to be a serial killer, any stretch of the imagination. But most serial killers are victims. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a lot of credibility. I really struggle in science full stop because what we seem to have created in the past, I would say, 20 years are absolutists. It's this, this is it, that's all it is. And they will not listen to any other debate. And of course, that's tragic for any kind mm -hmm. of evolving world. Science is forever changing, forever moving, forever learning, growing. So I would say that what the most important and integral part of us really learning about these kind of predators, and actually people who are violent full stop, is to be willing to listen to every single type of argument because usually there'll be an element of truth and a power within that that is helpful instead of this absolutist, this is right, this is wrong, it's black, it's white. It just isn't and never has been and should never be considered. So no, I think there's a great deal of weight to that triad and certainly it's something I talk about. Mm. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly it is? What are the three features yeah. of it? So chronic bedwetting, we say, but it's really chronic. So we're talking right until teenage years, for example, pyromania, um, fire starting, 
and also, as I said, animal torture. Now, if you have all three of those, the suggestion is that it will predict future violent behaviour. Mm-hmm. That's the method And again, like I said, you will find it hard to find serial killers who haven't got pretty much all of those, or at least 75% of those traits in their childhood. So to me, it speaks volumes. I'm not saying it's enough, yeah. because there will be people who are violent offenders who certainly have never gone on to kill anybody. Yeah. But the point is, it's an indicator of yeah. big potential and red flags that we should listen to. And another red flag I think that comes up a lot as well that people will discuss is head injuries. How do you see that kind of well, in serial yeah. killers or do you? Yeah, you do, definitely. But what I would say is the problem you have when it comes down to looking at serial killer brains is, of course, look, if you have frontal lobe damage, then frontal lobe damage is going to cause an issue with impulse regulation Mm -hmm. so of course if you damage that area and you're less consequentially thinking and you've got less impulse control then the consequence of that is you could act in a way that's not pro-social and that could cause damage let's say fred west for example who seemed to forever be falling on his head or having accidents (laughs) with his head or falling downstairs with his head and there were lots of examples john wayne gacy you know we can certainly identify in childhood there were some serious issues around head injuries but the problem that you've got is there are also billions probably of people with that kind of damage because Mm. head injuries are really common so I would say that you could look at it being a contributor to a point and certainly when you think about acting erratically or without consequential thought that could certainly be a connection but most of the killers that we talk about, even the Fred West of this world, who's a heinous murderer, who had serious head issues and very low IQ and problematic behaviours, he planned, he took time, he rehearsed, he knew exactly what he was doing. That's not poor impulse compl- control. That's premeditated murder mm. and an enjoyment of that premeditated murder. So I always think that whilst head injury is certainly something we should explore it doesn't compute when you look at the totality of the nation in the UK, for example, with many of us having issues with head injuries as kids and young adults. And it might change our character a little bit, but we certainly don't go rampaging and killing. But can a serial killer also have a head injury? Yes, if that makes sense. It's a bit like, can a serial killer also be mentally ill? Yes, but the mental illness doesn't make them a serial killer. Exactly, exactly. When it comes to, I guess, serial killers, um, what does the mo of a serial killer change based on their gender yeah yeah well the well the mo would the mo is so the mo is learned dynamic behavior so the mo changes anyway mm-hmm. so an mo doesn't say static so people often say mo and think that that's literally the way that that person always does it it doesn't it changes mm-hmm. so you might shoot someone you might stab someone the next time but when you think about the types of killing women don't usually like to be the joanna Dennehays of this world a thrill killer. We don't tend to be visionary killers like Eileen Wernos. We tend to just kill people by poisoning or we kill our children. Yeah. Or we kill some children. So it's infanticide and poisoning we tend to go for. So I would say that on the whole, women don't engage in the same brutal, bloodthirsty connections with killing, at least statistically on the whole. Some do, but it's rare. We don't like to get our hands dirty quite in the same way. And I don't think we enjoy the malevolent torture that our male serial killers tend to enjoy with their victims. And when it comes to male killers, then what is the difference? What are the the types of kills that they usually go for? 
I mean, if you're an organised serial killer, it tends to be lust-based, it tends to be sex-based. You want to essentially destroy the person Mm -hmm. that you're trying to own to some degree. There's a possession to it. I think that you're motivated by a feeling of wanting to have total dominion and control and power. You don't get the feedback of fear, guilt. You don't have the empathy to register the agony the person's going through. And essentially, you want a period of time. Time's really important to you. So it's not a rushed experience. And you do get disorganised serial killers where it's very chaotic and blitz-orientated. Mm-hmm. But for those that we really think about who are notorious and that got away with it for decades, it's very much a space and time where they can play out those violent fantasies. That's the way that they operate. And they usually are male and lust killers because that's the particular way that they get their emotional and psychological gratification. Mm. And when we look at serial killers as well and sort of another aspect of them reliving the the kill or, you know, the motivation for it, something that will come up a lot is um, taking uh, souvenirs or revisiting the crime scene. Is that something you'd only really see in lust killers or is that seen in maybe the female psyche as well? It's far more male and far more lust killers, absolutely. Because... Also, there tends to be a high level of necrophilia okay. in that view yeah. as well. So it's not just revisiting the crime scenes, it's actually revisiting the possession that is now theirs. Mm-hmm. So that, again, is, as you said, it's a trigger. It helps them connect back to the fantasy. And then for those who don't do that, they might store body parts or take certain things from the individual that they can then store and then connect with like any anchor, even in psychology, we use anchoring where we use specific objects to trigger certain memories. It's exactly the same for a serial killer, just on a very dark level. So psychologically, that's the fantasy. Then that's the revisiting, replaying the experience. And that's essentially what stops them for a period of time going ahead and doing more. So it satiates a desire to a Mm -hmm. point, but then it becomes that they need to revisit and recreate and obviously do more harm to feed and pump that feeling that's missing in that moment Mm -hmm. and when it comes again back to serial killers there's always a question of are they a psychopath is there a difference all of them all of them all of them all of them psychopath no way that any i don't care whether they've not been classified i don't care if somebody hasn't ever actually done a classification level on them they are all psychopaths because you can't get more antisocial than being an individual who murders somebody and the reality is that in the violent prison population there's a really high level of psychopaths anyway but certainly for those who are repetitive in their behaviors and don't have the empathy sympathy and compassion for the victims and don't understand the destruction that they're doing you can't get more antisocial mm. than that they'll all have antisocial personality disorder without a doubt whether they're a psychopath or a sociopath it really doesn't matter because the intent and the actual impact is going to be the same mm-hmm. you know, say a psychopath or a sociopath is created but ultimately the damage they do is you know, the same in these cases and every serial killer is definitely without one shadow of a doubt a psychopath and when it comes to it do you think that it is nurture versus nature is it a bit of both or is it one or the other I think genetics are far more powerful, which is one of those things that I didn't used to believe probably when I first trained. I always thought it was a 50-50 split, that Mm. the way you brought somebody up was the most powerful indicator. Now, what I would say is nurture is really powerful 
when it comes down to bringing up our children in a positive pro-social way and loving them in a way that they deserve because what you don't want to do is bring up a child in an abusive situation cause them attachment issues abandonment issues because that can be really fracturing psychologically but what we can say is that some children many children are brought up in those circumstances and they go on to become doctors lawyers they're incredible the resilience within the nature is like hardwired mm-hmm. so it can't just be that nurture is the biggest thing i, I think that sadly within our genetic code we all have predispositions and if you have a certain amount of activations to those predispositions even if you have the best parents that you could possibly have you will still find yourself in murky territory because of your essential fantasies and predilections that come to life as you grow through the ages and particularly in a world now where people have got access to hardcore pornography horrible material and smartphones at the age of seven Mm. obviously we've got issues of activation with certain individuals that might not have been activated years ago so i'm not saying that everything is predetermined it isn't because you know there are many psychopaths around i mean there's psychopaths everywhere they aren't going around killing people your postcode your parents certainly have an impact your privilege certainly has an impact but i think that essentially genetics play a massive role Mm. so if you have a child that's a pyromaniac uh wetting the bed chronically and you know abusing animals you can't nurture that out of them could you i genuinely think that if you had all those red flags early intervention before they get to being an adult is not just essential for their own regard Mm. but to prevent the catastrophe that society is going to endure and experience because whatever happens they're not going to go down a good road now there is some evidence that when they put a lot of resources and it costs a lot of money and we don't do it in england mm. if you use biofeedback which is a way of kind of teaching people to control things using the way that they think it's a computer program that's very effective compassion fatigue like so compassion training and a therapeutic work that isn't about self-discovery it's more about impact and the resources are placed into them understanding the consequences for themselves because obviously psychopaths are a lot more self-egocentric therefore you have to kind of work with them in a very different way if you combine those and it's not into late adulthood the impact of their behavior as long as they stay away from drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. that can be mediated to a degree so I don't think it's impossible to change the direction of somebody. You might not be able to mitigate it to a degree where they're this great pro-social human being. There may always be, for example, some destructive behaviours mm. around the way they treat partners. But I certainly think that if you put the money and resources into those areas, because the brain is interestingly something that develops and develops and develops. So there used to be this belief that, you know, in childhood it stops, it doesn't stop. It stops developing around 25, but actually it still can be programmed and reprogrammed and reprogrammed. And I think as we get better at that area, if we were to put the resources, particularly into prisons where there's a high level of psychopaths, we could probably do some work at offsetting the damage. I'm not saying that you're going to get that person to be a saint, Mm. but I think you could prevent them from being a really dreadful sinner, if that makes sense. Yeah, you could do enough work to stop them being a serial killer, which is, you know, what you want. I suppose the the best you can do. Yeah. To stop them being a love conner, to stop them being mm. a violent partner, to stop them being a terrible parent. You know, there's all these things. The problem is we don't fund mental health full stop in the UK, really. And we don't really care about prisoners. And no one wants to have that conversation. But 
unfortunately, like you ask the general public, and I understand why, I really do, because the general public just want to protect the people they love and they've got mm. a right to feel that they do that. But at the same time, it's because we don't put the resources into this area that we just have constantly offending and the punitive system doesn't actually give us the more of the results that we need. And therefore, we just, we just regurgitate these offenders as opposed to healing them to some degree. You're never going to get perfect, but I think there are things that you could do. I actually also think that with psychedelics, mm. there'd be an intriguing way of exploring whether DMT, psilocybin, Ayashka, these kind of drugs that I think are very effective at showing somebody conscience in a different way. It could be that those kind of psychedelics could be used um, either in a large capacity initially or with microdosing to potentially change the mindsets of individuals who have that malevolence. But again, whether anybody's going to put resources into that kind of research is probably limited because nobody cares as much about them as they do about the general population. Because mm. people feel, I don't understand why the general population who don't do that deserve more. And mm. I get it. And I think we do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I kind of that dichotomy because it's problematic that we're not curing and we're not treating and we're not returning. I mean, you just have to think about the fact we've just put people like Gary Glitter back into the public, you know, poor Gad. We yeah. put Colin Pitt back into the community. You know, he killed, raped children. And all they do is re-offend, put John Venables back in, yeah. re-offends. It's like, this is not a system that's an effective system. And until we address that, we're going to have perpetrators causing more damage when they are removed from prison and released from prison. That's quite an interesting take that there's a lot of science there that can maybe in the future help to prevent this. But also, I suppose there's a lot of technology has changed a lot since the heyday of the serial killer, I would say, in the 70s, you know, your Zodiac killer, your Night Stalker, all that jazz. How has, I guess, serial killers, like their psyche, their their the way they operate, how has that changed with technology over the years? And is there as many serial killers now? You'd like to think there isn't, but is there now as there was back then? Because it was a lot easier back then to get, get away well, with I it. Well, I would say it was. It was a lot easier. Goodness me, it was. I mean, if you had a kill list then, you could have <laughs> gone ahead and got away with it, couldn't you? These yeah. days, you'd be a lot more trouble. But... The reality is I think there's exactly the same. I genuinely do. And the reason I think there's exactly the same is because just like our technology improves, so does an organised killer. Certainly you'll never get rid of the serial killers who are random, blitz and chaotic because Mm -hmm. they could strike two or three times and the police probably won't even have figured out who they were because they won't have been necessarily even related to a person. That's really problematic for law enforcement, you know, because... It doesn't have a pattern, it doesn't make sense. But the more organised ones, I think they will just have learnt, got better. I mean, you just have to look at Tor, you know, the dark web, for example. There's access to the most horrific things. We live in a world where child sexual exploitation is almost normalised in certain countries. Mm. We live in a population where thousands of people go missing every year and are never found. And we're not talking about people who disappear and then turn up 24, 48 hours yeah. afterwards. We're not talking about people who you know, go out and, and take their own lives and never We're talking about people who genuinely go out and have no reason to disappear and then they never use any of their technology ever again. They never use their cards again. And it happens thousands of times a year. Mm-hmm. So I would say that I always find that very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable to sit with that these very loved human beings 
seem to disappear without trace. Mm. So I think that with technology, subcultures that are very malevolent can connect. And when there are more that can do that, there's more opportunity for these individuals to almost work as packs. So I don't horribly to say, think that we've got less of them. I think they'll be much more articulate at what they do. I also wouldn't, if I was a serial killer, do this in the UK. Because as much as our police force gets a lot of criticism Mm -hmm. and, you know, the UK full stop has an imperfect reality with policing, for the most part, they do a really good job. And for the most part, they are insistent on bringing people to justice. And also in the UK, we don't like to pin people who are innocent with guilty crimes. Whereas, let's say, in the States, they have a poncho and safer just going, get him, right, he's guilty. We don't like that. So I do think that we are very just in the UK in spite of our problems. And that's why I wouldn't I wouldn't be a serial killer here. Just mm. get a cheap flight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you I think know, in the US as well, there's a huge difference in, you know, I, I think the, the law in the UK might be slightly different to ours, but even in terms of the amount yeah. of access of information you get from cases in the US is oh, astonishing. Yeah. The stuff they I come out with. Speak, I have to speak. Honestly, I can just call a police department in the US and ask for them to release the interrogation. And they're really helpful. They're really helpful. They're like, here, do you want any other notes? And they'll have a chat with you. In the UK, no one can get anything. And there's a real protective mechanism around that. And I think that somewhere in between is probably the right place. But it's the same in documentaries. You know, I'm in a lot of documentaries and I have really good relationships with a lot of very senior police officers Mm -hmm. who were in the force now. And honestly again they've got a very tight-lipped attitude towards criticizing the police or talking about cases that they've worked on and I understand that whereas in the states you just say do you want to be in a documentary and they're like yes and they'll just <laughs> tell you whatever you want to but I kind of, I kind of embrace that to some degree because I think a lot of my learning has come from listening to people who are professionals in the FBI or listening to interrogations of narcissists and psychopaths whereas I can't get them in the UK mm. you know I can get things like Joanna Dennehy and I can get a few interviews here and there but there is something profoundly intriguing and curiosity provoking when you're listening to a killer just minimize and describe how they see the world differently and I suppose that probably comes from reading the gates of Janus by Ian Brady the horrific Moores mm. murderer and just look at his insight and seeing how profoundly different his mindset was to a normal typical human being because that's the other thing you know people get a really bad rep in the world like in the UK I think people just sometimes forget how lovely most humans are and most humans even the ones who are a bit annoying they will help (laughs) most people you know we have such a pro-social face and I sometimes think we lose sight of that and um that's what amazes me because you could take a room of a hundred people, even disagreeable people, and you put a child in need there, and every single one of them will want to react to help the child. Mm. And you know that's the profound thing that's so distinct about them compared to the kind of monsters that we're talking about now. And they are monsters. Mm. It's like often people say, "Well, you shouldn't use psychologically the term evil. It's not a psychological term." And I'm like, "Well, this is the term good. Yeah. Term. I'm pretty sure it is. I think the term kind is one that we use. We use it to describe victims all the time." Why can't we use the word evil? It is evil. The stuff mm. that they do to victims, the agony that they inflict, the children that they murder. I mean, there's nothing but evil to describe them, if that makes sense. There isn't a psychological classification yeah. that depicts the actions of those individuals. They're evil. 
simple as that. Simple as that. And you are, you know, for a lot of people when it comes to serial killers, it's sort of a thing you listen to a half an hour podcast, you watch a show, you walk away, you know, you get on with your day and you're back to whatever. But this is your career. You do this day in, day out. And in particular, you're coming, you have, you're touring a show at the moment. You're coming to Dublin to Vicar Street on June 7th with your new show, uh, The Serial Killer Next Door. So can you tell us a little bit about what the show is about, what you're going to be exploring throughout it? Oh, actually, we do things like the McDonald Triad. So we look at that Brilliant. in depth. We kind of talk about, yeah, we look at that. It's great that you know this stuff. I love it. But it, it's the ingredients list of possibility that I'm exploring. So, you know, what is it that creates these killers potentially? Would you be able to know if there was somebody living next door to you who was a serial killer? Clearly, the serial killer next door, that's the title of the actual show. Yeah. Also, we look at interviews serial killers i also look at some crime scene photographs because i think it's really important to be able to compare what you would see in a certain type of criminal mindset versus mm-hmm. what you see in like an organized killer for example we do have some fun i don't think that you can do two hours of darkness yeah so there is some light entertainment aspects to it because i think it's really happy i'm really happy to test the audience a little bit to ask yeah. them quite a lot of questions there is quite a lot of laughter because it's hard to put people in a position for two hours where all they're thinking about is death and destruction is essentially what we're talking about. And we kind of go through all the structures of the profiling system. We look at the criticism of it. And then we explore the similarities and differences between types of killers, look at MOs, signatures, and essentially also how likely you are to be a victim of a serial Ooh, killer. That's so interesting. it kind of is a whole round holistic experience that people will come in and hopefully feel at the end of it, you know, whether they're studying it, whether they've got a massive true crime obsession, whether they work in the field, a lot of people who come work in the field, mm-hmm. that they'll go still find it, that they found something new out. I really think that's important, you know, and I don't claim to have an absolute belief system anywhere mm-hmm. because Clearly, like I said, I'm not an absolutist. And um, we look at brain, we look at function, we look at genetics, we look at all those things. But the whole premise is it's kind of a pick and mix experience, and people will come to their own conclusions. And I am so blessed with the audiences that come because true crime individuals who are loving this area are just always really lovely human beings. It's like it's so strange. People ask me constantly about what is the kind of reason why people become obsessed with this area and I think that some people have this idea that it's voyeurism and it's just not Mm. like if you could imagine that most of our profile of people that come are female you know 80 percent they're incredibly warm and empathic and all they're doing is trying to figure it out you know how could this person here want to take this person here from all the people they love because you know that that is the absolute opposite of who you would be and how you would be so that's what the show is about and it's genuinely it sounds awful something about it's as terrifying as it is funny yeah and I like the idea of it having marriage because no one needs to come out and go home feeling more depressed than when they arrived if that makes sense and yeah I've always been obsessed with crime since I was a kid since I was a kid just love reading about serial killers it's a joke in our family actually because (laughs) when police investigate crimes they come and look around your house you know if they think you're guilty of something yeah. and obviously they'll look at your book stuff. well i they bang me up straight away they're like <laughs> she needs no trial she's clearly guilty. she's got the occult she's got spell books she's got serial killer books it's like yeah i have because i'm just really intrigued by all the areas she's got cult books but you know 
they would look at me and profile me as she's definitely a wrong yeah. because of all that yeah I think it's interesting you say that about the audience being 80 you know 80% women I think when you were at Crime Con we were there as well when you go around there like there's one or two men there with their part their female partners and it was just so yeah. interesting to see but the other side of that is on our podcast Nicola covers a lot of gangland a lot of Irish gangland and the men are love that so there seems to be this you know while a broad right. in, in a broad interest in crime the men are into the gangland and the women are into the serial killers but why is that do you think yeah. it's because we we just we want to you know know what to do if we are in that situation is it because we are the victim when we see ourselves in that sort of position or what is the psychic or the psyche behind it all so research tells us that psychological rehearsing is a big part of it oh, so okay. we get comfort imagining ourselves in those situations and not having to be in that situation so there's a soothing mechanism there also i think that we can't to some degree tolerate not understanding mm. so it's part of our desire to unearth an understanding for what these creatures do and how they do it and why they do it and mm. that wants to know what is it that we could change and shift to prevent these kind of killers and that's very alluring it doesn't surprise me that men are less interested in serial killers than they are gangs because when it comes down to serial killing, for a man to be serial killed is the most demasculating experience. Mm-hmm. It will make them feel powerless. I mean, obviously women feel this as well, but because of our social bias and our previous experiences of male-to-female violence, we have a social schema for a recognition that this happens to women. It shouldn't happen to women, it's horrific. But we also understand that our power physically is not going to be as dominant as a male. That's what makes us easier victims, sadly, than another man. Mm-hmm. So when a man, for example, Dharma's victims, they essentially have every social schema, every environmental schema, every biological schema stripped from them in that moment. And there's that sense of, I should have known better. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think women feel like that. I feel like women go, they are bastards. Whereas women say, they are awful human beings who are predators and they deflect that there's any responsibility on the victim and rightfully so i don't think men can do that i think men struggle with that whereas with gangs every man's imagined what it would be like to be part of the craze yeah every guy's imagined what they do to that guy who is a nasty person at work you know they've kneecapped them they're not really doing it but in their heads they could do it it's not a demasculating experience and even if they get into a scenario where they were in trouble with a gang there would be a male stereotypical bravado about having ended up there and there's almost like a loyalty base and I would say there's an admiration base so they're very alluring qualities for the guys it's Mm -hmm. not as scary it's not as demasculating it's much more in context of masculinity and so that's why I would say that definition shifts whereas women they go why are you all being a bunch of idiots (laughs) yeah why are you all being macho idiots and causing your families all of this distress? And that's the total split, I suppose, between those two, in my opinion. That's that's quite an interesting uh, view into it because, you know, it is something that, you know, as a woman, I would as well be more interested in the serial killers and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, Nicola, at this point, she says the serial killers are pussycats. You know, she prefers the gangland, the gangland guys because they're a bit more uh, scary, uh, which I have to agree with. Um, but when it comes to, I guess, 
this interest in true crime and I know since I again was a child when I got interested in true crime shouldn't have been watching the show as I was watching when I was five <laughs> but it, the, this, the, the way that we consume it has massively changed thanks to YouTube and podcasts and um, is there and there's a lot of conversation as well around it being ethical and us the way we yes. consume it being ethical do you think you can be interested in cr- true crime and consume it in a so-called ethical victim focused way? I think it's who you choose to watch. So Mm. one of the reasons I started YouTube was because I'd been in loads of documentaries and I'd had a few family members who I was very lucky to stay in contact with say they got certain things wrong. And I used to have a trust base when I was going into a documentary, I'd get the research, I'd read it Mm. and I'd test it and I'd comment. And it was horrifying to me. So I went back and I redid all the cases that I had been involved in with often the families who'd been involved with them. Mm -hmm. And it was so telling to me that sometimes people are more concerned with views than they are with actually legacy. So I think that it depends on what you're watching and how much work has gone into really consistently bringing the facts forward. And also how much the families are involved because families want to tell their stories. And I think that when people are watching shows around that area, and particularly most documentaries have families in, it's because they've got this desire to express the meaning of the human being that they lost. I think that the reason that it's so popular is because you can't go on a a journey quite as immense and intense as you can when there's been a crime because Mm. you get to feel it. You get to feel angry and rageful and devastated and emotionally devastated and all those things play in to the experience of being a viewer. You're not watching it going, well, this is great fun. You're watching yeah. it going, this is agony. Yeah. So the reason that I struggle when people, and you get it all the time, like where people accuse true crime fans of being voyeurs and they're not, you know, we've done research, we know they're not at all, they're quite the contrary. And you get this idea that only a certain person should tell a story. And I'm really against that because the reality is that people reach different audiences in different moments. So my viewers on YouTube, they're deep dive, they're very fact orientated, they know mm-hmm. a huge amount about the crimes and they trust the fact that when I'm telling them those extra facts and facets of the crime, they believe that I've done the research and I have, it's been done very diligently. But that should not make me somebody who deserves the channel more than a kid at 16 on TikTok or making a video on YouTube for 15 minutes about a crime we've just heard about, because the audience it reaches will be something that mirrors the relational experience age-wise mm. and with the kind of audience that they connect with. And it still makes people care. Yeah. So ethics are always a weird area because I think we can usually deconstruct the ethics of everything. Is it ethical yeah. to test drugs on a population? Probably not, you know, <laughs> but is it going to be possible in the long road? Hopefully, you know, so all the all the way I, I have quite, um, my temperament is one that always sees both sides of it. And I've been really lucky. The only time I've ever received criticism, have received criticism on YouTube, is by murderers' family members yes. who like to get in contact and tell me how wrong I am about the person, which I understand fully, but pretty much everything I do on a victim, I always have family members in touch. I've worked with several families now on Mm -hmm. YouTube, documentaries that I've done, where they've given me all the information. I'm working on another two at the moment. So I think that it's a mismatch for people to think true crime is a terrible area that's desensitizing because that's not evident. It doesn't desensitize us. It's quite the contrary to that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us like yourself, you know, you were a true crime fan and aficionado kind of before you got into this area that you're doing now. 
And it's of interest to me, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well, is what is that one unsolved serial killer case that you would most likely like to see reach a conclusion? I mean, all of them, really. But um, I suppose... I suppose I'd like to know who the Zojack killer was, you know. I'd also like it confirmed that the people they suspect, the person they suspect Jack the Ripper mm. was, was actually that person. But I think that any case that's outstanding now, even those that haven't necessarily got a conclusion, because even murder cases, like for example, a great one at the moment that's nothing to do with serial killing, but it just plays on my mind so much, is Noah Donahue. Yeah. Um, an Irish boy. And I can't let it go. You know, mm-hmm. I research it a lot. I've been in touch with people who are involved with that. And they're the things I think that get me even more than the serial killers, if yeah. that makes sense. Because it feels really present. Mm-hmm. And I know how the investigation's gone. And because I have more of a association, there's another one I'm doing as well at the moment, which is won't mention the name, but it's one where a, a girl definitely got murdered, but somehow the people who did it have got away with it. And that, that preys on my mind. So I'm going through the inquest, you know, and I'm getting information that I have to kind of ask for from certain areas because it just doesn't sit right when injustice occurs. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I think about the historic... I mean, Israel Keys had never been found, mm. you know, and those kind of killings had carried on. That would have been intriguing because it's modern and it yeah. feels like I could have an insight and could maybe bring something to that. But the older ones, I think I'm quite good at laying them to rest, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'd like to know, but it's not going to impact on me now. Yeah. And I suppose as well, this is going to be left field and got nothing to do with um, whether it is a serial killer or otherwise. But we have in Manchester and our surrounding areas a massively, extensively huge group of individuals who seem to just fall into canals and die. And the comparison statistically with other areas like Birmingham, which have got more canals than Venice, the anomaly of people ending up dead in canals near me is astronomical. And it's so astronomically different that I mm. cannot help but think there's potentially a push around. And I lost a lad that we worked with many years ago and I was running the mental health service. He was one of our boys who'd been taken off for an apprenticeship in sports mm. and knowing where he'd been with my friends that night, knowing that he wasn't drunk, knowing that he was just going to his girlfriends and him ending up dead in the canal. Yeah. That triggered a lot of the kind of things I have. So they're the cases that ultimately really captivate me because it's like no one's been identified, but when I look at the potential MO, then that MO of pushing something into the river would certainly apply. And also it's very much in the same area. So that's, more how my brain works if that makes sense absolutely so trying to solve the mystery so emma kenny uh she'll be at faker street on june 7th and this year with her brand new show the serial killer next door emma thank you so much for coming on the show oh thank you so much for having me it's been a joy you've been listening to crime world a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by ian mullaney and edited by me nicola talent research assistant is clodamini If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. 
Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.